Amen. Amen. Right on, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. As we come here, we have arrived at uh, actually the last section of this letter. Really, you could bust this letter up into three sections. And so as we do, I just, want, I just want to zoom out for a minute and give us the big picture before we zoom in and start to hear where Paul is going to go uh, from here on into the end of the book. From the very start of this letter, <clears throat> and in this series, if you're visiting here with us, uh, what we've been seeing is this, is that Paul was writing to this Corinthian church. It was a church that he had planted. It was a church where he had started the ministry and as he had moved on to other things and, and left that, that work to, to do its thing, uh, they had begun to resist him. And that in his relationship with them, they were, they were at odds. This church had been infiltrated by seducing false teachers. And in their desire to gain power, those teachers had, had undermined and called into question the ministry of Paul. They had attacked Paul. We're going to start to see that really clear here. At the end, and so Paul, as he sought to, to clarify his sincerity, as he sought to bring some healing to the relationship with this church, uh, we saw that in the first section of the book, chapters one through seven, what did he do? He painted this picture for them of what ideal ministry looks like. And uh, you could go on our website, check out some of those messages. And then in chapters eight and nine, Paul encouraged the church in the area of giving. In a practical way, he encouraged uh, the believers to participate in the work of the ministry. And now as we come to this last section, which is chapter 10 through 13, Paul's going to do this. He's going to challenge the false teachers and the rebels. And this is where, you know, Paul enforces the legitimacy of ministry, of his ministry as an apostle. And he's going to talk about the accusations. He's going to talk about the accusers and uh, Paul is going to get a little rough with these false teachers. In fact, as we're going to see next week, he's going to go so far to call them uh, deceitful workmen, uh, false apostles who like Satan disguised that angels of, as angels of light have infiltrated. And so, you know, Paul gets a little rough here. It's, it can be a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe some of the things we'll see, but I think it's good stuff. So he's going to do this. He's going to start to share about his heart and his life and his ministry in a very open, transparent way, in a way that you don't see in a lot of his other writings. This is, this is his most personal letter where he puts things on the line. He puts his heart on the table for people to see. And, you know, this is a church that he has planted and he is going to enforce the legitimacy of his ministry. Now this is, I, I want to say this. I hope this is okay. It's not a pissing match. Is that okay for me to say in church? Um, but that's the reality of what's going on here, okay? It's not that. You guys love me still? I love you guys too. That's not what it is. This is not a personality contest. You got to understand that as you go through this. This is not a personality contest between some pastors and between some leaders. This has to do with what is true and with what is false. This has to do with what is genuine and what is counterfeit. This has to do with what is legit and what is illegitimate. And so first things first, Paul says, let's deal with some misunderstandings and some misconceptions. Uh, there was an accusation against him. Check it out. Verse one. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ 
I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So in those verses, it's not hard to figure out uh, one of the accusations being leveled against Paul. What were they saying? They were saying this. When this guy writes a letter, he's a tough guy. <laughs> but when, you know, you, you get him in person, he's kind of a wussy. He's kind of weak. He's timid. See, the false teachers were all over Paul in this area because one of the characteristics of false teachers is this. Overbearing, dominating leadership that uses high-handed bully tactics. Uh, but it's done with such a charisma and, and a suave that, that it's, sometimes it's hard to catch. Remember what Jesus told his disciples? He said this, don't be like the Gentiles who lord it over those with whom they're in authority. See, some people are really attracted to that kind of leadership. You know, typically when you got heavy uh, handed leaders, one of the things that they use is legalism. Uh, they tend to drive people towards a, a works-based religion, a works-based faith, uh, rather than being grace-focused. Focus. And I, I think that that kind of like heavy leadership that, that we're going to see here in these uh, false teachers, appeals, it appeals to the heart that loves religion, that loves the facade of religion, that loves to idolize personalities and loves to idolize leaders. You know, in 1 Corinthians, if we were to flip back there, Paul shared the heart that he had as he planted the church. I'll just remind you of what it was, if, if, or if you don't know. He said this, when he came to Corinth, he said this. I came with this intention. I made up my mind. He made a decision in his mind that he was not going to proclaim to you the test that he was not going to proclaim the testimony of God with lofty speech or with human wisdom. But he said, I made up my mind as I came and did ministry among you that I wanted to know Christ and, and him crucified. And so when I spoke, it was in weakness. When I taught you, it was trembling. When I, when I preached my, my fear, my, my speech was bathed in fear because my, my message that I brought to you was not words of human wisdom, but I was seeking to have a, the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on the power of God. See, Paul wanted the church to trust in Christ. Paul wanted the church to put their hope in Jesus Christ and not in the servant who was serving the church. And so Paul deliberately did something in his ministry. It's a great example to us. He deliberately humbled himself in leadership so that Jesus would come to the forefront. Like John the Baptist who said what? I must become less and he must become greater. And so Paul sought to deliberately uh, humble himself. You know, think of Jesus. Jesus was to us the perfect example of ministry. The perfect example of what it means to have spiritual power. And that's why Paul says this. I appeal to you based on the meekness and gentleness 
of Jesus Christ. See, we say this, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Gail Irwin, for those of you who have heard him, has this, he talks about the power of the universe coursing through the veins of Jesus. <laughs> like, like a powerful stallion with all that strength, but just a little bit in the mouth brings that gentle or makes that powerful beast a gentle giant that will allow a rider to just direct it with the slightest of nudge and the pull of the reins. See, that was like Jesus. The power of the universe coursing through his veins, and yet he brought that power under control, and he served people. Jesus was meek. Jesus was gentle. So let me ask you this. Is Jesus a wimp? Was Jesus a wimp? Of course not. You know, as he hung on the cross, who sinned? The guy, Jesus, the man, the son of God hanging on that cross or the crowds who shouted crucify him. Jesus was never on trial. That's the thing we must remember about the cross. He wasn't on trial. You and I were on trial. Sin was on trial. No nail held him there. Love held him there. No soldier did that. He laid down his life. Love for you and me, even while we were still yet in our sin. And so to me, as I read this, Paul's words are a warning. A warning about the type of leadership we should have and a warning about when we deal with meek and gentle people. And he says this, I, I think he's saying this, when you deal with people that are easy to push around, God is putting you to the test. You are being put to the test. Jesus hung on the cross, meek and gentle. Who was being tested, Jesus or the sinners in front of him? It was the people. They were on trial. And in sin, the question for us is this. See, the kingdom of God is upside down. Remember that. It's, it's an upside down world that the kingdom of God turns right side up. And the question in the kingdom of God is this. In sin, will I bully the wimp? In sin, will I bully the weak, gentle person or will I serve them in love as Jesus Christ served me? See, the kingdom of God turns things up. So, so if Paul was a wimp, as these leaders were saying, then, then so was Jesus. But the scriptures tell us something about Jesus, don't they? About that power coursing through his vein. About that when he dealt with religious people, there was a righteous anger. You know, Jesus was known to kick over a table or two, fashion a whip, you know. There was a righteous anger when it was necessary. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying this. Don't force me. He's telling the church, I love you. I've done ministry among you. Don't force me to show you how bold I can be. Now, verses three through six, check it out. As they've accused him, he starts to give an answer. Another thing they accuse him of, they say he walks in the flesh. Check it out, verse three. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, because the Corinthians were judging Paul's ministry by the outward appearance, they missed the power. They missed discerning the power that was present in, 
in the man. You know, when my dad was a kid, he tells this great story about how he went to visit his grandparents' farm. And uh, my, gra- my great-grandparents, their last name was Pinkerton. I think that's just the coolest last name, Pinkerton. <laughs> Anyways, uh, they, had a, they had a farm right where Guilford Mall sits, okay? That was the family farm, Strawberry Farm. And they were there. And uh, when my dad was a young boy, probably five or six years old, he went to visit grandma and grandpa. And grandpa told him, look, in that pen right there, there's a stallion. Stay out of that pen. Do whatever you want around the farm. Don't go in the pen. So you can guess. What a five or six-year-old boy, whatever the heck he was there, what, what do you think he did? He ventured into the stall. And well, his grandpa saved his life after he had been knocked to the ground by that stallion. And while it reared on its hind feet about to come down on him and trample him, grandpa reached in and pulled him through the fence and got him out. Now, my dad, no doubt, has had a healthy fear of stallions and horses for the rest of his life as he doesn't go near horses. Now, see, what I'm saying is this, is my dad was a little guy that didn't realize the power that was there because he judged based on the misconceptions of childlike thinking, right? He, he, he judged based on the misconceptions of childlike thinking. See, Paul said in his first letters to this church, he said this, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. And like all of us, Paul says, look, I walk in human flesh. I have human skin, but I don't wage war with human skin, with human flesh. See, these religious personalities that Paul was dealing with, they they built their ministry on impressing people with their skills, impressing people with their speaking, impressing people with the power of personality, their ministry resume and their letters of recommendation. And Paul says that, you know, he's saying, you know, we see this about Paul. He decided to ditch all that stuff. I decided I'm not going to use that stuff. I'm going to not focus my energy with weapons of the flesh, but rather I want to use weapons of spiritual warfare that can pull down strongholds. See, you cannot fight spiritual warfare with fleshly weapons. What are the weapons of spiritual warfare that are made available to us? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us a bunch of them, right? The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, the sword of the spirit. But see, Guzik, David Guzik, one of my favorite commentators, said this. The Corinthian Christians tended to rely on and admire carnal weapons for Christian battle. Instead of the belt of truth, they fought with manipulation. Instead of the breastplate of righteousness, they fought with the image of success. Instead of shoes of the gospel, they fought with smooth words. Instead of the shield of faith, they fought with with the perception of power. Instead of the helmet of salvation, they fought with lording over authority. Instead of the sword of the spirit, they fought with human schemes and programs. Paul says, I decide to lay that stuff down. I'm going to use spiritual weapons. The helmet, the breastplate, the shield, all these things. See, we have the word of God. This is a weapon. 
It is a weapon from Genesis chapter one, right to the end of this book, Revelation. It is a living, breathing, inspired, inerrant word from God, a weapon that he has given us for the pulling down of strongholds. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's been given a, a weapon that we have the presence of the Holy Spirit, his power in our lives. And of course, I mean, I haven't even mentioned the weapon of prayer. Prayer is a powerful weapon. Especially when in prayer we use the promises of God's word. Well, what do we do with these weapons? Well, verse 5 tells us. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take cap and take captive every thought to sorry and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete see church what Paul's talking about here is this fact that we are involved in spiritual warfare Satan is working to destroy the work of God to destroy the church to destroy the people of God and one of the greatest areas where Satan goes to work uh, in this realm of spiritual warfare is in our own minds. In our own minds. You know, the, the mind is a battlefield. The walls of resistance in the minds of people is battleground. It's, it's like the walls of Jericho, which my boys think is a wrestling move sometimes. It's like the walls of Jericho. See, the reliance on and the habit of carnal and fleshly thinking is a true spiritual stronghold in all of our lives. The world has so pressed us right into its mold uh, that it, it sets deep down into our hearts and influences all of our thinking and all of our actions. And it's impossible to get free from the thinking of this world unless you use the spiritual weapons that have been given you through Christ Jesus. To break the strongholds of the mind. See, the scripture says this. Substance belongs to Jesus. Jesus is reality, Colossians 2.7. He is reality. Jesus said to the crowds, he said, my words are spirit and they are truth. And so with the word of God, we destroy the arguments and we destroy lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. You know, I think of the pride of intellectualism. It exalts itself. Nothing wrong with intelligence. It's good to be intelligent. But that high-minded attitude of intellectualism that's rooted in pride and that we see in the higher powers of our society that resist God and resist the word of God and the reality of it. I think of lofty opinions that, you know, low self-esteem, self-destructive thought, anti-God thoughts. All of those attitudes play into Satan's hands. And so what we need is right thoughts about Jesus and right thoughts about ourselves in relationship to Jesus. Now remember this, Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. He's, he's not talking to those who don't know Jesus. And he's reminding them to pull down strongholds in their mind with the word of God. 
You see, the, the spiritual weapons that we have been given, they're scorned by this world. The world says, Bible? Seriously? Come on, man. They, they laugh at us. But I'll tell you what, the demonic world fears when God's people begin to lay hold of God's word and to claim the promises and to pray them through. Paul says we take captive every thought to obey Christ. See, when we start to just think in a carnal, fleshly way, we must stop our thoughts and take them captive. It's, it's a warfare term. Take them as prisoner and bring them to Jesus. Now think about this. Think about cheeseburgers. Now stop. <laughs> Bad example. I totally lost the men. Now think about laundry. Now stop. Now it's a good thing I didn't say think about sex, right? I would have lost y'all. Aren't you glad we can laugh in church? Now look at, we can take our thoughts captive and bring them into submission to the word of God and to Christ Jesus. Thoughts of lust, thoughts of fear, thoughts of anger, thoughts of greed, bitterness, evil. Bring the thought to Jesus. Let your mind be transformed by the renewing of God's word. See, as we follow Christ, this, this scripture that we have been given, the word of God becomes the filter for our mind and for our thoughts. And we bring those thoughts to Jesus and we bathe them in prayer. Now, Paul, he, he, he was ready to confront the Corinthians. And he's, he's ready to pull down the strongholds among them if they would not do it themselves. Check it out, verse 7 through 11. He says this, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we as they're accusing him. You know, I think about the poor disciples when they came on the scene with Jesus and they were chosen to be counted amongst the 12. All these visions started to go through their minds right away. Visions of authority, visions of power, you know, visions of political power, seats of authority, and they were blinded and hindered from seeing and experiencing, even though they were right there present with Jesus, blinded and hindered from seeing and experiencing the true heart of ministry that Jesus exemplified because they were jockeying for position. You know, a, a great book I encourage you to check out that we keep on our book table is the Jesus style deals with this subject in an awesome way. See, one of the lessons that must be learned in the kingdom of God is that that position and power are no evidence of authority. Again, Jesus said, don't pattern yourself after the Gentiles who lord it over people, who lord their power over others. Jesus is the example who came as a servant and he ministered to others. And Paul says, I'm following that example. Now, the Corinthians were not spiritually minded enough to see what he was doing. They looked at the meekness. They looked at the gentleness of Paul and they contrasted it with the personality of these leaders who had come, you know, meekness, gentleness, and personality. He contrasted the two between these different leaders and they concluded meekness, meek and gentle Paul equals no authority. 
Just look at his personality. I mean, you read the history about Paul. We have all these great grandiose ideas of Paul in our minds, but you know that historical evidence says that Paul was nothing to look at or to listen to. Did you know that? In fact, the sense is there in history that he was kind of a fat guy, bald, big nose, that his eyes were weepy all the time. Seriously, he was a little ugly man. And not only that, history says that his voice was annoying. You might think my voice is annoying. I don't know. His voice was annoying and he wasn't even known as a great preacher. Isn't that crazy about Paul? But that's the reality and the truth about Paul. We have his letters, but in person, that's how people often looked at Paul. They looked at the outward appearance and they judged him and they failed in doing so to exercise spiritual discernment to see that this was a meek, gentle man who was a servant of Jesus Christ. Verse eight, he says, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. See, Paul had the authority. He was not, a, he was not denying his authority, the position that he had as an apostle. But he's saying this. Uh, the reality about Paul is this. He wasn't going to use his authority in an unscriptural manner. His authority was for the purposes of building up, not tearing down. See, anybody can tear down ministry. But it takes skill and it takes love to build ministry. See, here's the difference between Paul and these people that he's talking about. Paul used his authority to build up the church. These false leaders, they used the church to build up their authority. See, Paul, meek, gentle, but not weak. Verse nine. He says this. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. And his speech, see, there it is, is of no account. Not a good preacher, Paul. (laughs) See, when people are unspiritual in their judgment of ministry and they evaluate it from an unscriptural point of view... It doesn't matter what you do or how you do it or when you do it or this or that, they will condemn the leader. See, Paul was hooped. Didn't matter what he did because he was not dealing with spiritually minded people, but carnal people. See, they, they, they accused him of contradictions in his writing and in his speaking. Oh, you're weighty and strong when you write a letter, but you're, you're weak when you speak of no account in your speech. Paul says this, look, there's no contradiction. Think of it this way. If he came to Corinth and he was planting this church and preaching to the lost, there would be a certain emphasis to his teaching and preaching, wouldn't there be? Now let's jump to 1 Corinthians where he writes a letter to these guys and what's he dealing with? Is he writing to the the, the unsaved? He's dealing with a church that has a matter of sexual sin in it that publicly everybody knows about and they're not dealing with it. In regards to the gifts of the spirit, they're swinging from the chandeliers. There's chaos happening in this church. And so what does he do? Yeah, he brings a heavy letter. Do you think his preaching and his letter might have been a little bit different? I'd be frightened to receive his letter as well. So what does Paul say? Verse 11. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. 
In other words, he's saying this, be ready for my next visit. <laughs> because if it is necessary, I'll show how powerful I can be. You know, he's talking about authority. And, and I would say this, how a Christian uses authority is evidence of their maturity and evidence of their character. Wearsby said this. He said an immature person swells when he uses authority. But a mature person grows in the use of authority and others grow with him. He says this. The wise pastor, like the wise parent, knows when to wait in loving patience and when to act with determined power. It takes more power to wait than to strike. A mature person does not use authority to demand respect, but to command respect. Mature leaders suffer while they wait to act, while immature leaders act quickly without thought or care and make others suffer. But Paul, man, this is a tough thing that's going on here between him and this church. I guess the question is, is, and I think it's at the heart of this passage. It's how do you actually measure ministry? How do you measure ministry? Well, we know the habit of church people to measure ministry sometimes. How do we do it? Statistics, man. That's the first. Well, where was the giving? Well, how many people were at church? Well, how many kids were in Sunday school? You know, all those different things. We, we measure based on statistics. You know, regularly, you know, I find myself in conversations with people who, who don't go to church because dot, dot, dot. Or with people who express frustrations with, with church because dot, dot, dot. And, and I get it. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that their arguments and their opinions aren't valid. But what we're going to see here is that often people use false measurements to evaluate ministry. If we flip over to the book of Revelation, which we don't, I'm not going to get you to do, but if you wander through the stories of, of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 3, and you walk around with Jesus as he walks around through the midst of his church with his measuring stick, and he measures the church, what you discover is, is this, that, that Jesus does not measure the church like the carnal fleshly mind measures the church. He's not looking for the things that are high on the priority list of the carnal mind. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking this. You know that each week, this is a miracle right here in this room. Like seriously. I, I mean, every week, every Sunday, a miracle happens. By choice, you got out of bed. <laughs> You decided, you know, not to sleep in. You could have watched the golf channel. You could have gone out hiking. You could have baked cookies. I don't know. You could do whatever. But by choice, you made a decision to gather with God's people, uh, to worship Jesus, to hear God's word, to have fellowship. You know, as I thought about it, I thought, man, what a privilege I have to be the pastor of this church, to share God's word. I don't want to take that for granted. Should we take for granted what God is doing here? See, it's a miracle that people even show up. But some people only measure by statistics. 
You know, I was having a conversation a while back, actually it was with uh, Carrie. Carrie, you and I were chatting, man. And he was sharing how much he loves CTK. And he was sharing, you know, he's just talking about the season that we're in. He said, oh man, it's beautiful. Don't take it for granted, he was telling me. Don't take for granted what God is doing. And I thought, man, that's, that's good. You know, and we were talking about the beautiful demographic mix of our church. <laughs> we were talking about some of the uniqueness of this body. It was a great conversation we had. You know, and I would say this. I think we're a pretty healthy church. Now, I know that not everyone in this room would agree with that. Not everyone would agree with that. Now, the reason for different responses is that different people use different measuring sticks. So how do we measure? Let's look at verse 12. First, Paul's going to talk about the false measurement. He says this, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. First of all, you know, if you are measuring this body or any body or any person based on the measuring stick of yourself, that's messed up. <laughs> that is messed up. You know, what if we all looked like you? What if you all, God forbid, looked like me? Bad scene, man. That's messed up. And so, you know, try not... Sorry, I lost my spot here. Try not to look at them. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, okay, I get it now. I get where I'm going now. <laughs> Try not to look at the person next to you. <laughs> but if we classified our faith based on the person sitting right next to you. Again, don't make eye contact. Uh, but how would our church look if it was based on the person sitting next to you? If they were the measuring stick. Now, let me just give some free marital counseling advice. <laughs> you know, don't go home today and ask your spouse. What if I was the measuring stick of the church? Because, you know, your spouse knows the reality. They know the truth better than, than anybody. And so, you know, I would say this. Sometimes when I hear people rant about the falling short in God's people's lives, uh, I think to myself, and, and I've yet to say it, but I've thought about it. Have you looked in the mirror lately? Like, have you looked in the mirror lately? Have you looked in the mirror See, Paul says that, that when you're the measuring stick, you have no understanding. That you are with, not that you're ignorant, not that it's unwise, but that you actually have no understanding. I mean, have you not read in the Gospels that Jesus said the wheat and the tares grow together? That's how it is. That there are non-Christians here, that there are babies here, that there are people who are growing that there are people who are committed disciples, that there are people who are committed harvest workers. See, there's kind of a, there's a real nice mix. It's kind of like fruit salad. I like fruit salad. Okay. So, you know, in Corinth, those false teachers were measuring ministry and they like to use, they like to measure ministry by personality and they like to measure ministry based on activities. See, they had so many things happening. 
Look at the church calendar. <laughs> Isn't that a sign of health? Well, I guess you could say that activities are easier to measure than internal spiritual transformation. See, the legalist, the, the false teacher measures by what he does and what he doesn't do. But as we've been seeing throughout 2 Corinthians, it's Christ who knows the heart. So here's a crazy thought. Maybe we should leave the measuring of the church to Jesus Christ, his church, his bride. He purchased with his blood. And as far as it goes for us, be a faithful person. Be faithful to the kingdom of God. See, what is the measuring stick for our church? Is it not Jesus? I'll tell you something that'll set you free. You don't have to measure yourself based on the person sitting next to you in this church. You don't have to measure yourself against anyone here. You just have to measure yourself against Jesus. And you know, when I measure myself against Jesus, this is what I discover. That I fall short of the glory of God. And when I discover that and stop measuring myself against other people, a fleshly stronghold in my mind comes down. I stop comparing myself to my brother and what it creates amongst the people of God and within the, the church is an environment of grace and an environment of love. So you don't have to have your stuff together to come to CTK. Just, just so you know. Because if you have to have your stuff together, then every one of us is disqualified. You know, I went for a run the other day. It was a week ago Friday. It was beautiful out. I thought, man, I got to just get outside. I'm going for a run. So I went for a run and I was coming back through my neighborhood. And I saw a neighbor, a friend I really like. And they were outside doing some stuff. And so I just stopped and I said, hey, how's it going? How you doing? And... They said back to me, they said, you know, people ask that question, but they don't really want to know. <laughs> and I said, well, I want to know. I'm interested. How are you doing? Tell me, how are you doing? And they began to just share some of their life struggles. Some struggles in marriage, some struggles with things that they were dealing with. And I just tried to encourage them and they're, they're not a believer and they said, well, you don't really know what I'm talking about. Look at you. You have it all together. I'm like, Pfft. I started laughing, right? And we had a good, ominous conversation. Uh, I'm like, really? And then we talked about it. And we'll see where it goes because it was a beautiful open door where we got to talk about the Lord. And I got to tell them, I'll be praying for you. So false measurement is this. Measuring ourselves against other people. True measurement is this, to measure against Christ. Paul's going to give us some other true measurement things. Verses 13 here. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. I would say this. Here's a question to evaluate ministry. Am I 
Am I where God wants me to be? You know, I had, I had a conversation this week. We were, uh, uh, Monday night, we had the AGM for my father's house, uh, a little ministry outreach in Seashelt. And we were yapping and we were talking about somebody who had come into that place. And um, they had said to one of the leaders, they said, they said I, don't, I don't go to church because there's too much competition between the churches. And uh, I piped up. <laughs> and I said, or actually I was asked, what do you think of that? And I said, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Because I can tell you on Wednesday morning, there's typically, you know, five to eight pastors that gather here at this church from different churches on the Sunshine Coast. And we pray. And we pray for this community. And we pray for the health of our churches and the health of our people and the health of our, our, of our own homes and our own families. And sure, yeah, sure, we struggle with a bit of fleshly stuff, all of us. A little bit of whatever, your own pride getting in there. But we pray for the health of the churches. See, is our competition other churches? No. Our competition is Satan. <laughs> the the work of the devil, our competition is against ourselves. Am I doing what God has called me to do? Am I running the race that God has called me to run? Look, all of us are headed for the finish line. Every single one of us. We're all going to reach the finish line. So just stick to your track. Stay in your lane. Cross the finish line and you win. See, God's measuring stick for CTK is based on where he has put us in this community and the ministry that he has given us and that he has called us to. And it's not the same stick that he'll use to measure other churches. And so to me, I read that. And I think, man, stay on the job and be faithful. Am I where God wants me to be? Paul says this in verse 15, we do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here's another question. For healthy ministry, a measuring stick. Is God glorified by the work of my ministry? See, the leaders in Corinth... Brought conflict, brought trouble, weaseled in there, claimed it as their own, said, get rid of Paul. Uh, you know, and Paul said, look, uh, I'm not going to boast and I'm not going to claim the, uh, the work of others as my own. I'm just going to move on. And whatever I do, I want God to get the glory. You know, I guess, is God glorified by ministry? The final test of that is when at the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 18, last verse. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. And so I guess another question you could ask about fruitful, healthy ministry is this. Can the Lord commend the work? Can the Lord commend my work? You know, how does God approve our work? God does something uncomfortable to prove our work. He tests it. God permits difficulties to come 
in order that the work might be tested and in order that the work might be approved. And if we are seeking, as Paul said that he was doing, seeking to glorify God, then we need not fear men. Let God evaluate the heart and rest in it. Am I where God has called me to be? Is God glorified in the ministry of my life and in the ministry of this church? Can, can the Lord commend my work? Hey, challenging stuff in there. Let's pray.